and uh, we are in this last little section here, um, and it actually uh, appears to some people that this section was an add-on to the letter of Philippians. In fact, back in uh, ancient times when people wrote letters, uh, how many of you ever saw these two little initials, P period, S period? Uh, it means postscript. It's like a way of saying, um, hey, by the way, or just one other little thing that I, I need to mention. It just kind of gave you a little freedom to add something in after your, thoughtful, your flow of thought had kind of finished. Uh, it's such an old usage today that if you Google P period, S period, you know what comes up? PlayStation. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> um, so... So I, I just, I want you to know that the section that we're in, in Philippians, is not a, oh, by the way, it's not a P.S. I think this last few verses of Philippians, that, which are very personal, Paul kind of giving an example from his own life, it's as though we've been climbing all the way through this long hike, we're now at a meadow, and Paul says, behold the view. So think about it, we're, we've just talked about in chapter 4, we've talked about rejoicing in the Lord, and in case you forget it, rejoice again, and then we talked about anxiety and peace and now contentment. If you don't see how those things obviously go all together, you're missing something. Um, and that's why I've said from the beginning, the way to think of this book of Philippians is it centers in the very middle of it, chapter 2, on the humility of Christ. Think of our solar system. Think of our sun. Our sun has this massive gravitational force. It pulls together hydrogen and helium. It unites them so close together, much like the humility of Christ pulls together believers who wouldn't normally get along. It pulls us together with such gravitational force and unites us around the gospel of Christ, the kingdom. The two big words in Philippians are in Christ and gospel. And just like the sun that pulls together with that massive gravitational pull, helium and hydrogen, and creates this nuclear reaction that blasts out energy and life to the solar system, so when we're bounded together in unity of the, uh, around Christ because of the humility of Christ, it, it radiates out to a dark world the joy of Christ. And I have said that uh, the definition for joy, one of them is contented anticipation. I think that's what Philippians teaches, contented anticipation. It's the idea of this supernatural ability to embrace whatever God has for you, knowing the whatever is serving the what's to come. That's what joy is. It's embracing whatever God has for you because you know from everything the Word says to you what everything God's proven to you in your life that the whatever is serving the what's to come. And the what's to come is spectacular. There's another way I like to think of uh, joy in, from Philippians. It's this idea, and by the way, I, I realize today I'm going to be popping through some of these slides a little fast uh, it's like a professor who didn't get through his syllabus in time and has to kind of wrap it all up. Um, <clears throat> so if, if, I, if you want something, just, just text me. and I'll get it to you or email me, whatever. 
Another way of, de- of joy is to think of it as a defiant nevertheless. A defiant nevertheless. It's, it's what Jesus experienced in Hebrews chapter 12. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the shame of the cross. He was looking to the future, and that joy was like a powerful thing, drawing him through, giving him endurance. That's what I mean by defiant nevertheless, or, uh, or as, this, as I mentioned last week, I, I think the greatest symbol for peace uh, is not the peace symbol, it's not the, the, it's not the symbol with your finger, it's not the dove, it's the most flexible tree on the planet, a palm tree. In fact, last Sunday uh, before church or right around there, I was telling my son-in-law, he has this palm tree out in the front of his yard, and he says, guess what this is a symbol of? And, uh, and typical of me, I gave him a mini sermonette. But the, this defiant nevertheless, it is this idea of... Uh, the flesh and the world and the devil can huff and puff, but cannot blow your house down. Proverbs chapter 20. The righteous man falls seven times and rises again. That's what joy is. That's what we've seen. So this is this last word and in the last few verses here of Philippians chapter 4, it's not a P.S., it's a behold of you. Behold, this is what joy looks like in real life. It looks like this contentment. It looks like the difference, it's a difference between a life that's ruled by anxiety, a life that's ruled by wants, a life that's ruled by needs. So let's read it. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 20. If you don't have a Bible, it's right there in your bulletin. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you, Philippians, yourselves, know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So here's the setting. Uh, Paul is in great need. Look at how he describes it in verse 14. He describes it as my trouble, or another, another possible translation here is my distress, my infliction. Remember, he's in prison. He's been without things. He's been without basic supplies for quite some time. And, uh, and now he's in this situation where um, it seems to him, as we're going to see here in verse 10, this this, it seems like he's been forgotten and forgotten for some time. But I want you to notice in verse 10 that little phrase, now 
at length. These are a couple bonus lessons I'm going to give you before we really get into the meat of the message today. In verse 10, notice that little phrase, now at length. What Paul is basically saying is, it may seem like others don't care, but you know what grace does? Grace doesn't rush to judgment. It leaves room for a possible acceptable explanation. Sometimes, you know, you've been neglected and you just wonder, does anybody read my Facebook? Uh, well, sorry, that's not really an example of neglect. But, uh, you know, you can be in dire need sometimes and it could just seem like everybody's so self-absorbed, they don't care at all about you. And I'm not talking about superficial need, I'm talking about deep need. But is it possible that these people care deeply for you, but they lack opportunity? There are things that have gotten in the way over which they have no control and you have no information. And so grace does not rush to judgment. Grace leaves room for an acceptable explanation. And so Epaphras finally arrives to him sometime later. He arrives with his very sacrificial financial gift. Paul finds out that he's not only brought this financial gift, he finds out that the people in Philippi are living in extreme poverty. Not only that, he finds out they've been persecuted. And, and uh, so now Paul's got a dilemma. How do I express my thanks to them for this incredible gift without expecting more from them? Boy, you have to be so careful. How do I ease their burden? I mean, these people are bothered that their pastor, their founding pastor, is in prison. They are burdened for him. How do I ease their burden, thank them for their gift, and not expect more from them? It is so easy to relate to people through your needs. It's so easy to establish an entire relationship, even with your closest friend in life. That's all based on how well they're meeting your needs. It's done so subtly. Manipulation is so much a part of our way we interact with one another, we're not even aware of it. But Philippians is reminding me here, we don't relate to others through our needs. Demanding from others and from God what we think we absolutely must have. What we think we're entitled to. When really the only thing technically that we're entitled to is to be banished from the presence of the goodness of God for billions and billions and billions and billions of years. That's the only thing we're entitled to. So contentment, lesson learned. So let's, let's look at this. And here's something to think about as we go through these couple of verses here. Ask yourself this question. I'm going to try to lay out for you what contentment is, biblical contentment. But while I'm doing that, try to think of what then is, does discontentment look like? If this is what contentment looks like, what does that say about what discontentment looks like? And by doing both of those, we'll get a real robust time here in this passage. So the first point I, I see here is that contentment is a lesson that must be learned. It's not an attitude that we can switch on. I know how to be brought low and I know how to bound in any, every, every circumstances. I have learned, verse 12 says, I've learned the secret. I've, uh, I don't know why they translate this word secret, maybe because 
uh, in English some time back, the word secret worked better than it does today. Secret sounds like this kind of formula that, like Kentucky Fried Chicken, only a few people know it. Uh, and that's not what's going on here. Secret is actually the same word as when you're in a, a cult and they, um, they initiate you into a cult. It's the initiation process. I've learned the initiation process and, and I'm now fully into that particular group, that particular uh, clique or whatever it is. So it's the same word there, which is why I think the word lesson is a better translation here. I've learned the lesson, or as one translation puts it, I have been taught to cope. I've been taught to cope. And again, the idea here is that this doesn't happen easily. You don't just switch this on. In fact, notice that Paul has had to learn contentment, not just in great times of need, but believe it or not, you have to learn contentment when you have a lot too. Did you notice that? I've learned contentment not only when I'm in great need, but when I have great abundance. I'll never forget, his name was Dave. Uh, called me up one day. He was a father of four little children. Rick, I just found out I've got leukemia. And so for the next year, Dave went through it. And by God's grace, he went into remission. They still doing great today. But it was about 12, 13 months later, I got another call from Dave. He was back at work. Life was normal. He was miserable. He was in a tailspin. He was breaking down. I'll never forget what he said to me. When I was laying in that hospital bed being visited by my wife and my daughters, wondering if I'd ever see him again, and totally powerless, all I could do was trust God. Now in time of abundance, I have power again, and I can't trust God for the life of me. I can hardly get through a day. Boy, that was a wake-up call about how hard it is when you live a life where God isn't necessary to live in utter dependence upon Him. I've learned the secret, the contentment. I've learned this lesson. I've been taught to cope even in times of abundance. And then verse 13, notice that I can do all things through Him. Those are the words that I'd circle there, underline, put in bold. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Biblical contentment is not the same thing as earthly contentment. It's not the kind of um, Spock mind game that you play with yourself. It's not the kind of chill pill personality. It's not the kind of stop whining resolution. That is not what contentment is in Scripture. It is something that is only learned through Christ. The Lord is my shepherd, therefore I shall not be shepherded by my wants. That's a learned lesson. And that's why today I thought I should really bring in a hands-on expert to wrap up this Philippians series. Uh, one of my friends from the past, uh, Jeremiah Burroughs, uh, I told him not to dress up for this service, but he just felt the need to put on his normal garments um, but uh, he's here to help us out with his uh, 300 pages on Philippians 4.11. The rare jewel of Christian contentment. Now, if you think that this gets boring after a couple pages, it just shows how shallow you are. Sorry, I don't... 
I am not going to retract that statement. I, I, let me, give me a second. I'll explain it to you. The Puritans, that's, he was in the group of uh, believers living during the time of the Puritans, about 1600s to almost like the time of the American Revolution. And uh, they had an amazing ability to extract applications and implications from the text of Scripture, unlike probably any other time in human history. They're worth a read, and these small paperbacks, are they, they're made accessible to us as a result of that. And where we're able to maybe get a styrofoam cup of application out of five or six verses, they can build an entire mountain out of a few verses. Where we do a flyover of the tulip fields in Holland, Michigan, they plant themselves there for a whole, the whole week of the tulip festival, learning everything they possibly can. We don't know tulips. And that's why I love the Puritans. Here's a, here's a definition that kind of summarizes the whole book. The whole book basically takes this definition and unwinds it. Contentment is the inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, freely submitting to, and boy, these next three words, and taking pleasure in God's disposal in every condition. So let me invite you to learn from the master here. You know, I've learned, for example, that when you build furniture, you can watch a YouTube, and you can watch them do it and go, oh, okay, I get it. And then you go into the shop and you go, oh, I guess I don't get it. And then you go in again and, oh, I guess I don't get it. And it just takes practice over and over again until you finally start mastering what's made so simple. And that's the idea here. There's the simple ideas in Philippians 4, but then there's practice, practice, practice. So let me give you three things that Jeremiah Burroughs gives to us about uh, what we can practice. The first thing is we need to practice surrendering our definition of wants and needs for God's wiser definitions. Look at verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is, a, this is what I call a bumper sticker Bible right here. Uh, I mean, wouldn't you love, you know, have, back in the old days, they used to actually turn these into decal and put them on the bumpers. Now they just tweet them. Uh, but uh, this is Twitter theology. It's the worst kind of theology to live off of, by the way. Um, this is kind of like this time of year when everybody hears those graduation speeches that are tiringly predictable. You guys have worked so hard. I mean, you're the generation that's going to do it. You know, you, you have so much potential. Uh, you're just beginning to realize how, what you can contribute to the world. Oh, boy, am I tempted to say something else there, but I won't. But anyway, this is not that kind of thing going on in, in verse 13. And you know why? Because God gets to define all things. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Not I can do anything that I want through Christ who strengthens me. Not I can, my wish list can come true through Christ who strengthens me. God gets to define what those all things are. In fact, look back at chapter 1. We saw this right at the very beginning of Philippians, verses 19 through 21. In chapter 1, Paul says this, 
I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. What does he say? I know I'm going to be delivered. I have no doubt about it. I am going to be delivered. He's in prison. And he says it's in verse 20, it's my eager expectation. It's my hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. And if he put a period there, we may think he's expecting to be delivered from prison. But he says, instead, he puts a comma there, whether by life or by death. I know the Lord's going to deliver me. I'm either going to be executed and he's going to deliver me that way, or I'm going to be released from prison. Do you see how he's opened the door to God getting to define what deliverance is? That's what contentment does. There's no situation in which I cannot live for God's glory by God's power. That's what verse 13 of 4 is saying. It's not I can do all things I want to do through Christ who strengthens me. It's that there's no situation in which I can't live for God's glory by God's power. And that's why verse 19, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Does that seem like a wonderful verse that sometimes isn't so wonderful? Haven't you had times when it seems like God hasn't supplied needs? I've been praying for people this week that they would have a great vacation and not get sick, and God hasn't answered that prayer. That's because God gets to define what my needs or what needs are. In fact, have you ever given away something that you think you need, something that you just, maybe it's an amount of money, maybe it's a thing, something that you know by giving it away, you're taking a great risk, you're making a sacrifice, and after you've given it away, you've realized it wasn't something you needed after all? Something you could live without? God gets to define every need. So practice surrendering your definition of wants and needs for God's decision or God's better definitions. And then finally, or secondly, practice looking for, expecting, and announcing the goodness of God in every unwanted situation. Jeremiah Burroughs puts it this way, not only do I see that I should be content in this affliction, but I see that there is good in it. I find there is honey in this rock, and so I do not only say I must or I will submit to God's hand. No, the hand of God is good. And I say with the psalmist, it is good that I was afflicted. That's what it means by taking pleasure in God's disposal. Taking pleasure in the very thing you'd never wish upon yourself or someone else. In fact, look at verse 17. In verse 17, it turns out that my need is someone else's opportunity to glorify God. Paul says, I want you to understand something. As much as I appreciate this gift, I am not seeking this gift because I have a great need. I'm rejoicing in this gift because by you giving this gift to me, you're receiving great credit before God. You're, you're giving glory to God. This is blessing you because you're doing something that is so godlike. My need is someone else's opportunity to glorify God. I know a lot of you out there. And by the way, can I just make a judgment? It's not wrong to make judgments if you're right. Um, <laughs> there are a lot of you out there who love to help others, and even sacrificially. But you're not so great at receiving help. You're a little too proud for that. 
And so that's part of it, is allowing others to be invited in. I, one of the common questions that I get asked by uh, senior saints, saints in their 80s and 90s, it's the same question I would have in my 80s and 90s, and that's, Lord, why have you left me here? I am ready. I'm at the bus stop. I'm waiting every day like a child out there, and the bus still hasn't come. I was with someone just this week, you know, and that's the conversation we were having. Uh, Aching to be home. There's only one viable answer for that. You're still here because somehow, some way, God is getting glory out of your momentary existence here. Most likely because you are a great center of need that others have to care for you. And that act of others caring for you is hard on you, but honors God amazingly. There's always more going on than my desperate need. It's like we're part of an impressive jigsaw puzzle. We've never seen the box stop. We won't till we die. And we can only see a few pieces, but we've got to trust God that the puzzle is amazing. We've got to just hang in there. We've got to think about the story of Esther. We've got to think about the story of Ruth. We've got to think about the story of Naaman and 2 Kings. Why is a little girl taken away into slavery? Such an awful thing to human traffic, this little girl. But she turns out to be the voice piece to actually bring healing to a Gentile, a precursor of the gospel coming in the time of Jesus. Who would have thought? Who would have thought when Jeremiah, the prophet, was being taken away to Babylon with all the other people, God said to him, buy a piece of land. You'll never see it, but get the transaction witnessed. And he would carry with him into exile a deed of property that he'd never see, but would be witness to the fact that you're not seeing the whole picture, Jeremiah. Or why would a ship crash on the way to Rome where Paul manages by the grace of God to save all the sailors on the ship And they wind up being the first island evangelist to an island that wasn't even on anybody's map. And the story goes on and on. We must look for and expect these things and publish the goodness of God in the most unwanted of situations. That's how contentment is practiced. And we should practice submitting to the wisdom of God's providence even when we can't see the goodness of God in it. A contented heart, says Burroughs, looks to God's disposal. It submits to God's disposal. That that is, he sees the wisdom of God in everything. In his submission, he sees God's sovereignty. But what makes him take pleasure is God's wisdom. The Lord knows how to order things better than I do. So contentment is confidence that God will deliver me through, if not from. And so we yield with joy that contented anticipation to whatever path God is sending us on, even a path that makes no sense, even a path that is painfully longer than we can endure, because we know ultimately it is a wiser path. It's a wiser path the the one we want with a better outcome than one we can achieve. That's the beauty of contentment. Contentment is this inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, freely submitting 
and taking pleasure in God's disposal in every condition. So I asked you the question, what is, if that's what contentment looks like, then what does discontentment look like? Which is a great question to set us up to participate in communion today. So before we do that, I'm going to invite the worship team, the guys serving communion to come forward. We always like to invite, if you're new here, if you know Jesus as your Savior, if you recognize him as your Lord, this is your table as well. This is a table for everyone who knows uh, Christ as their shepherd. And so you'll come down the center aisle uh, and uh, take bread and cup, and then I'll lead us all together taking it in just a few moments. But maybe the best way to think of what discontentment looks like is to think of the psalm that Jeff read for us today, Psalm 23, a very familiar psalm. But did you, know, did, you, did you know that one of the ways you can understand the Bible is by saying the opposite of what it says? So you, t- you can take a psalm and turn it into an anti-psalm. So let's take Psalm 23 and let's say the opposite of Psalm 23 and let's get a picture of discontentment. And once again, no idea you hear from this mouth is ever original. This comes from David Pallison. Uh, and this is, what, this is his anti-psalm of Psalm 23. I'm on my own. No one looks out for me or protects me. I experience a continual sense of need. Nothing's quite right. I'm always restless. I'm easily frustrated and often disappointed. It's a jungle. I feel overwhelmed. It's a desert. I'm thirsty. My soul feels broken, twisted, and stuck. I can't fix myself. I stumble down some dark paths. Still, I insist I want to do what I want, when I want, how I want. But life's confusing. Why don't things ever really work out? I'm haunted by emptiness and futility, shadows of death. I fear the big hurt and final loss. Death is waiting for me at the end of every road, but I'd rather not think about that. I spend my life protecting myself. Bad things can happen. I find no lasting comfort. I'm alone, facing everything that could hurt me. Are my friends really friends? Other people use me for their own ends. I can't really trust anyone. No one has my back. No one is really for me except me. And I'm so much all about me, sometimes it's sickening. I belong to no one else except myself. My cup is never quite full enough. I'm left empty. Disappointment follows me all the days of my life. The Lord is not my shepherd. I am ruled by my wants. That's the opposite of Psalm 23. But behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the discontentment of our heart. And he does so by paying the ultimate price for that to happen. The Lamb of God, who is also the Lord, our shepherd, 
So therefore, it's possible that we shall not be ruled by our wants, but can actually experience contentment because of the sacrifice of Christ. So let me pray, and then you come. Lord, you are our shepherd. May we not be ruled by our wants. You make our soul lie down in those green pastures beside those still waters. You heal us. You lead us on the path of righteousness over and over again. You do not deliver us out of darkness, but you definitely deliver us through darkness, through the valley of the shadow of darkness. And you are leading us as our shepherd to a secure place for us where our enemy cannot touch us. We'll actually be able to digest a meal in the presence of our enemy without any concern whatsoever. Our lives really are overflowing and are destined to overflow forever where we will forever be in your presence. And so we come grateful, celebrating the price of Christ for what we have in his great name. Amen.